Hello friends, my name is Mike. Thank you for joining me today on Up North Rocks, Northern Ontario's only climbing podcast. Listen to me, Annie. I don't care how experienced you are. A smart climber always wears a belt and suspenders. Dad. Two cams are safe, three's even better. Dad. Not kidding, Annie. Nobody's going anywhere until you put another cam in the wall. Dad, I have three cams. He's just yanking your chain. What the? This route is sandbagged. There's no way this is 5'5". Five five. This is like 5'8". D. Hi, folks. Thanks for tuning in today to my conversation with exercise science expert, Dr. Tyler Nelson. First off, disclaimer. Tyler's not from Northern Ontario, and he's never been here. He lives in Salt Lake City, Utah. But despite that, I think you're all going to enjoy hearing from him, because this episode is all about a sport that is near and dear to the hearts of many of us in the frozen north, ice and mixed climbing. I was a client of Tyler's about a year ago, and got some seriously valuable advice, which really helped change my perspective on the finger injuries that I was facing at the time, including some issues that were a result of going too hard on ice tools. This season, I've been focusing more on training for ice and mixed climbing, and that led me to thinking about Tyler again, and so I reached out to see if he might be interested in doing an interview focusing on the training needs and injury risks faced by ice and mixed climbers, and very generously, Tyler said yes. So, let me give you a little background on Tyler. He is a second-generation physician whose father was a leader in the sports chiropractic profession for his career. In graduate school, Tyler completed a dual doctorate slash master's degree in exercise science with an emphasis on tendon loading and rehabilitation. He completed his master's at the University of Missouri and was a physician for the athletics department for four years at a college. These days, he's the owner of Camp 4 Human Performance, where he treats clients from around the world via telehealth, as well as in his office in Utah. He's also a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the NSCA and teaches conferences worldwide. Basically, Tyler is the guy when it comes to tendons. Tyler is an experienced boulderer, trad, sport, and big wall climber, and so he is able to blend his knowledge of our sport with his expertise in exercise science to provide world-class rehab, training, and coaching advice to climbers of all disciplines. While he's not a big-time ice climber himself, you'll hear that he has a number of ice and mixed climbers who are clients, including athletes on the ice climbing competition circuit. So, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Tyler Nelson. Okay. Hey, Tyler, how you doing? Great. Thanks. Thanks uh, so much for, for coming on today. It's uh, it's sweet to have you here. Yeah. Happy to be there. I wish I was actually physically there because I think it's like quite beautiful where you are, correct? It is fairly beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. We have uh, a pretty awesome wealth of, of ice and mixed climbing in this neck of the woods to play on this time of year. So and big, big, deep forests, correct? And big, deep forests. Yep. Yeah, that's the thing that like, you know, Utah has a decent amount of deep forest, but it's hard to be, it's hard to disappear from mm. the city. You know, even if you go high in the mountains, you can still see and hear the city. So it's like being lost in the forest is something that we don't get here as much as we do like in the Uintas or up north where you all are. Totally. Oh yeah. You can escape the city here in like 10, 15 minutes and you're, you're fully in the forest. Yeah, you could hike four hours uphill here, and you'd still hear the city or see the city. Yeah, that's that's the most wild. part. Yeah. yeah, and you're you're in Salt Lake City, correct? Yeah. Cool. Which I mean is a a climbing mecca of its own. That's a, yeah, it's becoming one for sure. And I think the climb, I think it's really just kind of a central location where it's easy to get to a lot of places from here. Mm-hmm. And there is climbing here, but I think for the most part, people would say that the bouldering here is meh. It's like good granite bouldering but it's not like leavenworth good granite bouldering or yosemite good granite bouldering and then the trad climbing here is like definitely not quality vertical crack climbing like yosemite um it's more low angles kind of run out kind of open cracks you know it's not as epic but still goodish you know but Mm -hmm. close to lots of things that are amazing too cool very cool well yeah i mean that's a good segue into um 
I mean, probably some people listening will be familiar with who you are and other people maybe, maybe less so. I mean, uh, yeah. Who, who are you? How'd you get to do what you're doing? Where are you from? When did you start climbing? All that kind of stuff. So I grew up in a traditional sports kind of background. So I was an athlete my whole life and it was kind of funny. I would drive up the canyons to go to different cities to play sports or up the canyon here and to go skiing because I did ski when I was younger and would see kit people just on the walls, like little ants on the wall. I'd be like, damn, that looks cool. Like, cause I knew there was obviously big rocks in Utah in the mountains and people that would climb them, but I didn't know anyone that did that. Like when I was a kid, no one that I knew climbed rocks other than Aaron Chammy, who like one person who my dad knew as a client of his, but aside from that, I didn't know anyone. And so I always thought that I would be good at that because I like wrestled when I was a kid. And so then when I went to college, I stopped I wasn't interested in the team sport thing anymore and met some friends that were into like outdoor stuff and uh, Alpine stuff from uh, Michigan. And then I moved to Colorado and then I was like, I want to start rock climbing. And then I just like started rock climbing, you know, it was just like, it just seemed like such a, such a good way to experience being outside and to keep going, you know, cause you keep hiking and eventually you run into something that's steep and you got to climb something. So I've always, it always felt natural to me in that way. Very cool. So yeah, so the climbing thing, then I just went to school and graduate school and then realized there was maybe a lack of a lack of updated exercise science principles being applied to rock climbing. So that kind of was the direction that I was most interested in after graduate school. Very cool. Yeah, because am I correct that you did a PhD? No, I have a master's degree master's. in exercise science. Yeah. And then cool. my chiropractic degree is like my doctorate degree. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. Yes. Cause you are Dr. Tyler Nelson. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, everyone now is a doctor, right? And I think cause PTs now their graduate programs are four years and chiropractics is four years. And then obviously medical doctors is four years. And then you can be a doctor and get a PhD, right? So it's like, which is great. Like I think nowadays in schools, like the difference between what PTs and chiros learn with the gooder, with, with the better uh, chiro schools, um, they're pretty much the same. We learn the pretty much the same thing. So there's a lot of carry over there. So, you know, most of the things that I do is strength conditioning, which is rehabilitation for injured rock climbers is probably 90% of what I do during my day. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Cause I mean, it seems, you know, from following you on Instagram and I did have the the opportunity to to have a session with you about a year ago for some some issues that I was having. We can get back to that. But from what I've observed of you, it seems like you have an incredible amount of very specific tendon knowledge. Um, yeah, know, uh, that's what I, I did my I, master's degree in. Right. So just like in anyone that's done a high, you know, graduate level program, it's like a lot of the same thing for a lot of for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of real nitty gritty details on those things and how they change, et cetera. So that's kind of my expertise and that's kind of transformed into applying it to the ligaments of the finger and the tendons of the fingers and the hands. And so when people scroll through my feed, there's a lot of stuff on finger anatomy and finger physiology because it's just something that's very common in rock climbing, both the training side and the injury side. And there's not a lot of people you know, currently that have an expertise there and there's a lot of people that have a need for that. So it's kind of been a, a nice niche to fill. Yeah, it seems it seems really sweet. And what like I was saying, I I had a, a session with you about a year ago. And I mean there I got a bunch of like really awesome, like more kind of technical information from you. But I think the the one thing that has stuck in my head the most more than anything was basically like you telling me that my fingers hurt not because I was overtraining them, but because I was undertraining them. And that was like, that was like a light bulb moment for me. Like I, that somehow that had never even occurred to me. And I was like, you know, afraid to hang board and my fingers hurt. So I figured I needed to do less and realizing that, that more and better training was a better option. Yeah. It, it totally changed the game. So, so thank you. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So for me, it's like, um, you know, rehab is strength training that just has more limitations. I usually tell people, but those limitations are temporary. And so when people have a pain complaint, you know, the initial response is to adjust what you're doing and pay attention to it and modify the behavior. And it's okay to avoid things that are scary and maybe you thought provoke the symptoms, but you shouldn't stay away from them forever, you know, because pain as injury should be temporary and we should continue to 
progress into those things. Um, but again, it's like, that's why I kind of focus a lot on the strength conditioning realm and the neuroscience stuff on pain. Cause a lot of the things that I learned in graduate school, like I don't, in terms of the, the, the healthcare stuff, like they're not as supported as, you know, it's hard for schools to be very up to date with, you know, modern science, just cause there's such a machinery that has to change, you know? So most of my business is writing training programs that adjust all the things. And like you mentioned, a lot of times people need to do more intentional loading to help build capacity for tolerating a sport. Totally. Yeah. Very. I mean, you, yeah, you just took what I said and made it a, a thousand times more, uh, more like useful and, uh, and, and accurate. So thank you for, for, for restating that. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, I guess let's, let's quickly chat about your, your business. So you, you operate camp for human performance. What is camp for human performance? So originally the idea, the name comes from like Camp Four because I spent a lot of time in college going to Yosemite, like in the summers to climb big walls is kind of my background in climbing. And then um, I wanted the business to be more than one thing. So it'd be like a lot of different things. And it's kind of morphed to a lot of things over the years where originally I had a, a clinic in person where I would manage a lot of low back pain and neck pain, typical of what chiropractic physicians would do. But that, but I always wanted to move in the realm of like sports performance and focus mostly on climbers. And so at the same time I had my office, I was still doing a lot of traveling and teaching and Instagram things and whatnot. And so after COVID, like, like, and I was already like, maybe I changed my office to working like three times per week in my office. And then two times per week, I would do like remote consultation stuff with people. And then with COVID, I just like really buckled down and like taught a bunch of courses and then just like since then i've been able to like make now that's all my business now it's just doing remote and people still come in office but very much for ultrasounds and testing but the you know interventions are are relatively similar so like i manage all the rehab stuff and the strength conditioning stuff for camp four and then i have a couple other coaches that help me as well and so colin who lives uh in philadelphia in uh redding pennsylvania he manages like a lot of the continuing education and like mobility conditioning stuff. And he helps me do some teaching. And then I have two, I have Gabe, who's another coach from Minneapolis who does a lot of like the youth um, competitive, like technical movement coaching and uh, prescription there. Cause that's his background. And then I just brought on another coach, Jesse uh, from, I think Jesse is from Oregon. No, he's from Washington. Um, who does a lot of the outdoor technical coaching evaluation stuff. So I've over the last couple of years tried to expand my business to not just be me because it's overwhelming and I want to have a you know bigger team of people that can contribute um, just because it's great to have everyone's opinion too. So kind of morphed over the years, but I do a lot of traveling and teaching and, you know, rehab stuff. Totally. Yeah. I saw on, uh, on Instagram that you are potentially running a course in Toronto coming up in the, Medium linear future. Yes, I'm so psyched about that course. I love Toronto. Cool. Have I've only done... been there once. Okay, cool. Have you done much teaching in Canada in the past? Yes, I usually go to Canada like twice, three times a year. Cool. So, awesome. like last year, I went to Calgary and taught a couple courses at um, uh, what is that gym? Josh's gym. Um, oh, uh, I don't remember the name of it? I know the one you mean. Yeah. Josh and Reagan's gym in Calgary, just outside of Calgary. They have a couple of gyms, I guess, but it's a bouldering only gym. And then can't remember the name. Maybe it's Boulder. Is there a gym called Boulder? Mm, I was this just is looking at their oh, Instagram actually, the other day. Yeah. So their gym in Calgary. And then I taught one in Ottawa and at, geez, I can't remember the names of these gyms right now. Elevation, maybe? No. Altitude? Oregon. Altitude? Coyote? Uh, there was a newer gym it was a newer gym outside of ottawa it's pretty sick gym like really pretty like all wood inside gym it was a beautiful gym oh yeah. yes 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 i know the one you mean uh um, the name's escaping me but i know the gym you're talking about yeah there's a lot of gym names so so yeah. there and then i'm going to toronto we're going to teach you a course at joe rockheads in may sweet and then in the fall i'll be going to squamish to teach at the canadian uh climbing medical symposium cool but I might try That's and line awesome. up a course there too. So if people are listening and they're psyched to set up that, let me know. Very cool. That's super but, awesome. Well, yeah, maybe, I mean, the, the climbing scene at Thunder Bay isn't, 
isn't as huge, but but maybe one day we'll snag you and get a, a course going in Thunder Bay. I think there were some people from Thunder Bay that came to my course in Calgary. Cool. That's I awesome. I want to say they did, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. fun. Like, I love, like, my, my job is so fun. I'm really so blessed. Like, coming and, like, going to gyms and, like, it's like, you know, me and you are immediately friends because we have a lot of the same interests and climbers are very very dedicated and they're very OCD about their training and they're very interested in all the details. And so it's like, I get to go and like teach people things and they're very good students and it's just fun to hang out and climb. And so it's like, it's such a fun environment for teaching. So I, I, I love uh, traveling to teach. Very cool. That's awesome. Um, well, I mean, we've mostly been talking about rock climbing, but it is winter at the moment. Um, so I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about ice and mixed climbing i mean first off i'm wondering do you do any ice and mixed climbing yourself or have you i've done a quite a bit of alpine style climbing like in the winter time mostly like ski touring stuff cool but not much vertical ice climbing or like um, mixed climbing i have some clients that do that as well um for sure but mm-hmm. not myself mostly um winter time i've been more of a skier because i live where there's not as much vertical ice climbing but there's really good skiing so Lots of mountain terrain, you know, in the winter time, um, but less big wall like you guys have up there with in the winter. Right. Cool. So yeah, that my second question there was going to be, do you have some clients who are ice and mixed climbers? And so sounds like yes. Yeah, 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 for sure. And so when it comes down to the physiology, it's very cool. Like the the physiologic demand of a mixed climber and ice climber is, you know, a bit different. You know, for that population, primarily because the holds aren't small. I mean, the holds can be small, but it's through a tool, and so the actual hold that you're holding onto is very much like, you know, a jug. And so a lot of times those athletes will have wrist pain. That's a pretty common complaint and elbow, you know, bicep pain, because there's just a lot of the same movement over and over and over and over. Totally. Yeah. Well, that, now you took the words right out of my mouth. Like that, obviously it's different, you know, and from what I, you know, I've been trying to, you know, follow your, your stuff over the years and like this focus on, um, you know, volume being a, a a thing that is, you know, creates higher risk in dehydrating your, your, uh, your tendons and, and whatnot. And so then, then you try and apply that to like a mixed climbing scenario where like you could easily be hanging in basically the exact same hand position for, you know, upwards of an hour on a hard pitch or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, how do you, how do you skin that situation? Like, how do we, how do we build the extreme endurance needed for hard mix climbing and not fall into those traps of injury due to high volume, low intensity. I would say that the, that, that climbing, it's going to be more vertical. I mean, obviously there's really steep versions of that, but most people are going to be doing vertical long pitches for an hour, you know, in the mountains, like that's from my opinion, that's more of like a hypertrophy and like a connective tissue size, increase over a training block so for those athletes probably more so than like a bouldering athlete building muscular hypertrophy in the forearms and the you know the bicep and the brachialis and the tricep and the shoulder and just like building a little muscle size before the season starts would be a really good thing for those athletes Um, and when you get bigger muscles essentially you get like they grow in their diameter not really in their length so you'll grow you can get a little bit of length change but you're going to get mostly diameter change and what that does is that adds more connections to the connective tissues around those muscle fibers as they go to the side. And so having just a big ass gas tank pretty much is the best thing that someone can do in the late fall time preparing for the winter is like, you know, maybe gain five to seven pounds of muscle mass, you know, and then it's going to give you a longer season just based on like having that extra capacity for holding onto a tool for a long time. Cause you don't need bullet strong fingers for doing that. You need to learn to relax in your hands more and rely on hanging on your connective tissues in the upper limb more than like actually pulling hard on your fingers. Right. And the extra fat or not necessarily extra fat, but like you could gain a little bit more body fat. And I'm not sure that that mixed climbers do that, but it would make sense to get a little bit more body fat because that's the kind of fuel that you're going to use the whole day when you're outside shivering and being cold and being able to produce energy for your body that's a real like different metabolic energy expenditure than would be like doing hard bouldering or single pitch spore climbing. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I've been 
been puzzling over myself in my own life. And I think that the point of, of needing to put on that, that extra connective tissue and that extra muscle mass is, is something that I, you know, personally need to, to put a bunch of time into. And, um, I, there's another post that I saw that you posted, uh, I think this was just a day or two ago about A2 pulley injuries and hanging on jugs and how like, you know, because jugs are easier to hold on to, you can hold on to them longer and then you're run a greater risk of exacerbating things like A2 pulley injuries. And I was wondering if a similar principle would apply to hanging on ice tools being, you know, pretty juggy. Uh, yeah, for sure. If, if someone has an eight, well, and I would say the, the, it's really about the rotational load that happens on a jug. So an easy way to think about like the pulleys for people, maybe that want to get the picture in their head of what they are is like the guy wires on a fishing pole. You know, those wires are designed to resist tension away from the pole, but they're trying to keep the line close to the pole, but the pole is not really designed for you laying it on the ground and stepping on the guy wires. You're going to bend them and they're going to break, right? They're not really as good. If the, if the fish is going to the side, you're going to turn your body to keep it like the wire in line with the pole. You don't want the pole crank into the side. And so it really is like if someone has an A2 pulley injury or a sore pulley, or they have a pulley rupture, the knee jerk reaction that most people have is to do easier things, but doing easier things for most climbers means doing bigger holds, but bigger holds, you can still grab onto the thing and put compression on the pulley, but you can also still twist the pulley, but you're going to do more volume of that too. And so it's not really that, that jugs are bad and they hurt fingers. It's really that climbing easy terrain is not a good strategy for someone with a finger injury because it just makes them sore and it's confusing as hell as to, you know, whether it's helping or hurting. So ice climbing, I would say the same thing, like ice climbing tools are kind of like, you know, a pinch overhead, except your fingers are closer together and they're really wrapped around a handle. So you're definitely getting some rotational load to the pulleys too. Um, but I would say on the whole, the ice climbing wouldn't be as problematic. I would, you know, I would tape an A2 pulley in a glove ice climbing and be less worried about that than grabbing and cranking on jugs. Right. But it also depends on, you know, the severity of the injury and the length of the pitch and the outdoor sessions, et cetera. But, you know, but I was really surprised. I, I chatted with a climber. Um, um, I can't say his first name because it's not easy to pronounce, but I'm, I don't think he's a, maybe he's a mixed climber, but it was like the, the sport where the climbing shoes have a spike on the end of them. Is yeah. that the mixed climbing? Is that, yeah, that, maybe that? that's that's getting like a little more into the sort of comp end of competitive next time. That shit is crazy. It was sick. totally crazy. Yeah, but the way that he used his tools was like not just like hanging on a jug. It was amazing all the direction changes that the athlete puts through those tools, which was like very cool. Mm. Yeah, that actually does raise another good point too, in terms of yeah, like you know, at its most basic, you're just hanging straight down, but trying to build that that like incredible static strength to be able to, you know, like you said, hold a tool at a 45 degree angle for an extended period of time. And, and that it's, it's definitely a thing in competitive mixed climbing, but it's also a thing in, in outdoor mixed climbing. Like, you know, if you're, especially on gear, if you're torquing up a crack with your tools and you're needing to maintain that, that 45 degree outward torque while you're fishing around on your rack to find the right piece of gear you need, like you could easily be, hanging in that weird static position for an uncomfortably long time. Um, yeah. Are there ways that, that people should think about building that sort of like more, more like static lock off kind of strength as opposed to like dynamic explosive kind of strength? I would say they would still do it. If we're talking about the fingers, I think a fingerboard is still a good tool. But for this particular athlete, we have him using different tools and he has a pretty sick setup where there's like cracks, vertical cracks in a, like a home wall space. So imagine a fingerboard that hangs straight down, that you hang straight down on, but then also having a vertical fingerboard on your wall where you grab it to the side too. So like, and I work, well, obviously my background is a lot in trad climbing. And so people that like want to go climb an Indian Creek, like hanging straight down on a fingerboard 
sure might increase your recruitment and your finger flexors, but it's not the same skill as hanging with your fingers in a ring lock when your thumb is down or your thumb is up. So you have to find a way to train the coordination for that in that position in some way that's not just on a fingerboard. You know, so gym cracks maybe fit that um, that paradigm. A lot of times I'll have people use the flashboard and hang it vertically and load it hanging down so they get that pressure on top of the fingers. And so I think I think people feel like there are more rules to training their fingers than there really are just because there's such a big machinery that talks about using a weighted hang on a 20 mil edge. But like when it comes to what people need to do, it's kind of intuitive. And I think most people kind of know what they need to do. They just hesitate to do it because it doesn't get talked about or it's not like a popular thing. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like that goes back to what I was saying at the start about like my, my light bulb moment from you. Like there's so many, so many things that you read on the internet about like, you know, new climbers shouldn't hangboard and that kind of, you know, old, old school rhetoric. And I think that, yeah, like you're, you're speaking to kind of a shift about, you know, generally training is positive and it's all about just finding the ways to do it that, that suit your needs and suit your injuries and that kind of thing. For sure. Your fingers, you still need pulley strength to do what you're doing on with, with tools. It's not the exact same coordination demand, but you still need the capacity in your pulleys. So like I just finished writing an article for climbing magazine, which is like part two of the finger kind of finger, finger training piece that part one is already out. If people want to check that out and should be out maybe within the next week or so, essentially it's like describing, you know, how beginner climbers that, you know, grow up in a gym climbing, they spend most of their time for the first couple of years on big holds maybe even up to the V6 grade level, the holds are still pretty big in a commercial climbing gym. And then when the holds get to from v, V6 to V8, that's where most people get injured from my experience. And I mostly talk with people who have finger injuries. So there's a pretty big data set there, but it really comes from at that point, now they're getting into crux moves where the moves are hard and they need to have finger strength. That's not because they're not strong. They're not, they don't have the, maybe the capacity in their pulleys because they're not used to loading them because they're loading on bigger holds. But then also they don't have the coordination and the joint stiffness to actually tolerate those other positions where they don't have a lot of support for their finger. So that's when most people start a finger training program. But what they do is they have a lot of climbing volume because that's gotten them where they are now. But then they add on top of that some really heavy weighted things done a couple times per week, which is too much of an overload. And then they get sore fingers and they get finger injuries. Where my argument is beginners should use a fingerboard all the time. That should be their primary training tool to build capacity in their pulleys. But they should just do that every time they climb a little bit on a fingerboard on big edges, but start exposing the A2 pulley, which is the most commonly injured to that tensile load and then do their normal climbing routine. You know, so yeah. that that tolerance needs to be built from the start, not halfway through an athlete's grade level. Totally. Yeah. I I, I read that article and I found that super, super interesting. And I'll put a link to it in the, the show notes. Um but yeah, it, I mean it, it part of it it makes you know it makes me feel like a bit uh bit disappointed that I hadn't read a similar article, you know, 10 years ago or something, because I think I would have really benefited from hearing that as a, as a new climber, um, which then makes me wonder, you know, what is the, for folks who did kind of miss that boat and did fall into the, the old school of like hangboards are for advanced climbers only as a new climber, you should just be building strength by climbing. What's like, what's the on-ramp for, uh, for people that, that, yeah, or maybe, you know, five or 10 years into their climbing career and are now realizing that they, they sort of missed out on a big, big bunch of training they could have been doing. I, I would say those athletes are really going to benefit the most from, cause I mean, everyone wants to climb more, like, cause we love it because we want to go climbing. Those people probably are going to be well suited by doing maybe a three week strength training block where they change the way they're loading their fingers and they get away from only the climbing stuff and they intentionally overload their fingers with more slow controlled loading on a climbing wall. You know, and if it's going to be someone that needs 
like grip strength. So I would say, you know, ice, ice climbers and mixed climbers need more grip strength than finger strength or not necessarily more, but they need more grip strength than normal climbers do because they're squeezing something, you know, where like in addition to on the wall, slow control loading stuff for those athletes, they could use like a hand gripper because they have to train the thumb muscles and the interossei muscles to be really strong and, you know, as big as they can so they can expend a lot of distance or a lot of energy when they're in their season. Right. So those athletes, I would say they need, they're probably fine dedicating some time doing a strength training block that in and of itself is, is like injury prevention because it's a very different kind of load than climbing is because it's more in line with like strength training loads, slow, controlled, heavier, lower volume because you get tired faster, et cetera. Those kind of habits are really good for that particular population because everyone knows once you climb, you just keep climbing and climbing and climbing, and then you plateau. It's really hard to break through that plateau. That plateau usually requires people to get away from the typical loading habits of regular climbing and focus on something that's more structured. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I that's something I'd never really thought about is the distinction between grip and finger strength. But now that you're saying it, it makes complete sense. Like obviously, you know, hanging on a nice tool, you're you're grabbing a handle and hanging on a crimp, you're you know, you're not wrapping your hand around anything. And that that's gonna it's gonna have to play a role in in my training moving forward. Cause really I have been been thinking of uh, you know, like something like like one arm weighted hangs on a jug as more transferable to hanging on an ice tool than maybe they actually are because of that lack of thumb involvement. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. You could like, you could imagine, or like for ice climber, I could envision someone making like a, or just like, I think with that one athlete, we had him test and actually pull his force pulling down on his tools you could just fix a tool over something and like do the hangs on that one arm with added weight or, you know, with sub body, sub body weight, like for a longer duration or something like think about the tool as the training intervention, pretty much. We just have to change the way we use it and we can add load to it. So, you know, the, the reason that people like a fingerboard is because you can quantify the load that you put on the fingers, which is a good thing. And people like to see that increase in load, right? The downside of that is the coordination of that is not the same as rock climbing. So the only way you're going to get a coordination to rock climbing is if we spend more time rock climbing than that thing, right? So it needs to be supplementary, but supplementary in a way that during a strength training block has a greater dosage than the typical like fingerboard protocol. Because a lot of people, when they do a strength training phase, I ask them what their climbing looks like because most people just assume a strength block is they do some fingerboarding and they do some weightlifting. But then when I ask them about their climbing, they're still limit bouldering, red point bouldering, or doing capacity bouldering, right? All of those things would not be productive for building more strength because it's too much volume per session. Hence why I would say the people that have been climbing for five to seven years and they want to get stronger fingers, they need to stop doing the normal climbing stuff for those three weeks and really teach their body to produce more force and activate and access more of those muscle fibers and then apply them back to the wall. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I'm like trying to sort of translate that in my head to what that might look like from an ice and mixed climbing perspective. And what I'm envisioning is that then that, you know, like what you're saying about volume being an issue in a strength phase you know, you'd be better served by shorter duration. Like, you know, say you're like climbing on a, a systems board with tools. Um, you'd be better served by like a shorter duration weighted than a longer duration unweighted. Is that, is For that sure. Right? For sure. So I would say as well, like system board, that would be a home system board, right? Make sure people don't go to the gym with their tools. They'll get yelled at. <laughs> yes, definitely <laughs> but true. You yeah. could, but you could still use your fingers and that would still be a good way to access more muscle fibers in the finger flexors. You could also do, I would say for mixed tool climbers, it would probably be better to use that same like finger crimp kind of laddering methodology and do it on pinches. Right. Okay. Yeah, if I'm that doing makes it sense. On pinches, now I'm squeezing with my thumb every damn move. 
And I've done that on my wall quite a bit because I have a lot of pinches on my wall and crimps, but the pinches load the outside of the elbow differently than the crimps do because it's different to hang right below them than it is on crimps. But I always have to have that counter pressure with my thumb. So if someone had access to like a, I'm thinking like the tension pinches that people put on campus boards, like mm -hmm. up and down those, that would bore the hell out of you though, right? Uh, too much. So like a tension board, if you set problems that are only pinches and you're being slow and methodical with grabbing them and you climb to the top in 50 seconds, that is a set of exercise. That is a repeater, right? On your hands, but that's more interesting than doing it on a fingerboard or with a pinch block, but it would also be a very good way to increase the stress and the stiffness of your, of your fingers and your hands and your tendons that would translate very well to mixed climbing. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Like again, back to this thing that I hadn't thought about of the like grip versus finger strength, like, yeah, things like pinches, that's going to make a lot of sense. And as you said, if you can do it in a, a more sort of, you know, climbing roots than just, laddering up and down the campus board kind of way it'll be more enjoyable and and also be a, a more of a, a more yeah, full body more exercise body yeah yeah for sure it gives more shoulder tension more chest access more hips etc it's just just gonna we want to do as many things as we can on the wall that will help us build strength but i think the biggest mistake maybe that people make is strength training at its most simple explanation is heavier and it has more force only because and that's the only reason that it's slow so what what i don't want people to hear is like climbing up jugs really slow makes any damn sense because that doesn't make any damn sense to me it has to be really hard like the handholds that you're grabbing onto should be really hard for you but because they're really hard for you you should like need to use bigger feet, but you want to get in the habit of controlling them and then moving to the next one and then moving to the next one and then laddering up the wall in that manner, that will increase your strength. But the reason that it's slow is because it's hard. It's high intensity. Right. That makes sense. And uh, I guess, again, in a, in a tool situation, like because it's jugs all the time, you you need to be adding a lot of weight to make it hard and then that just also increases the need for that slow careful controlled movement because also if you're going to be doing any kind of training on a wall with that much weight hanging off of you you're running a whole other kind of risk yeah yeah especially if you're doing tool only stuff it puts the wrist in ulnar deviation so your wrist is kind of like cocked in one way you know which is like pretty stressful on the tfcc you know so i would assume that there's quite a few TFCC injuries in, in that population because of that stress as well. Um, and we see that a lot now in competitive climbing with the big volumes, because people need to like do the meat hook kind of position where they actually get as much skin on the hold as they can, but they have to kind of torque the wrist down and hang on it, which is pretty stressful. So there's a lot of passive loading to the connective tissues when you're doing it with a tool only Whereas the strength training routine, you want it to be more about muscle activity, not really only connective tissue like stress, you know, and then, then when you get into the season and so let's say people are like, take some creatine, if they've never done that, that's a really good way to build, to hold on to more water locally in your muscles and do more sets of high intensity exercise. And it'll make people gain usually, you know, a couple pounds of, of of, of water weight in the form of like storing your muscle, that would be a good thing. And then when the season gets closer, then you want to start doing more of the, what it looks like for your sport kinds of exercises and use the capacity that you built for a sport season, knowing that you have to back off the sport season at some time. Right. Interesting. You know, so right. I would say for the strength training block, you don't want the stuff to look exactly like the sport all the time. Cause that's right. like a high dosage. Right. And that's why I tell sport climb or even bouldering athletes, like your sport, your, your strength training phase shouldn't be limit bouldering because hopefully you just came off a season where you were doing lots of limit bouldering in order to not get hurt. You need to stop doing that for a period of time. It doesn't need to be a long period of time, but some period of time and then build some capacity and then go back into something that looks more like your sport. Right. That does make a lot of sense. And especially, yeah, 
I mean, in any in any discipline, that makes a lot of sense. And because because there's so little variation in what hanging on tools looks like, that's probably all the more true. Like, if you're only ever hanging in that exact same, like at least in you know in regular climbing, you're holding different hold types, you're moving around, your your hands are getting some variation. But if you're climbing on ice tools 365 days a year, you're you're gonna just end up with claws. Yeah, that's a lot of the same stress for sure. And I would say those athletes would benefit by using something like um, the wrist wrench or the rolling thunder or the wide diameter pull-up bars where you hang on it. If you've seen those that will actually roll mm. or just like a wide diameter pull-up bar, just like grab onto that thing and do like isometrics on that tool too. Those are still like very much hand dominant exercises where that's probably more a priority for what you're describing than a typical bouldering or sport climber. Right. Okay. Interesting. That's, that's, that's something I've been wondering about too, is like the idea of mixing it up makes sense. And I had been, I'd been kind of only envisioning mixing it up as going to smaller holds, you know, like, like instead of only hanging on tools, adding in some, some small, some smaller edge fingerboarding. But it sounds like you're saying that going the other direction also makes sense too. Like what you're saying with like the the rolling edge. Yeah, uh, for sure. So it'll make you just squeeze harder. It'll make it'll, it's a way of increasing. I would say for mixed climbers and people that are using tools, it probably makes more sense to use a bigger tool, a wider, larger diameter surface than it would be using a smaller one. Like it would make more sense to use a wider diameter pull-up bar to do pull-ups on than it would using minimal edge stuff for your fingers. Cause you don't need that unless the, the hard thing is like a lot of people like to do both. Right. And so it's like, how do I do both? And to do both, then you need to be, you know, more on the fingers too. But I would also argue that minimal edge finger training is a coordination thing. It's not a strength training adaptation at all. And do you maybe familiar with what I'm referring to there? What that what I mean by that? Like coordination as opposed to strength, like in terms of like you mean like in terms of muscle recruitment? Is that sort of or yeah, a lot, a lot of people a lot of people will do like the heavy hangs and mm-hmm. then they'll do the small edge. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people feel like the small edge is hard. They're like it's hard, but it's hard because it's a different coordination demand. But there's no way that you're getting more recruitment on a small edge. It's just not possible. Mm, You're never going to get as much recruitment. You're going to get high levels of recruitment maybe, but it's more, if you're not familiar with the position, it feels really hard. And by feeling really hard actually produces less recruitment because your brain has a bit of a, a governor on it. That's going to limit how much force it allows you to produce based on the effort. So if your effort feels really high, your recruitment tends to be lower. And so it doesn't mean small edge training is a bad idea. It just means that people are better doing it on the climbing wall than on a fingerboard because you're going right. to get more of a coordination adaptation that looks more like rock climbing and feels more like it. Gotcha. Okay. Like it's like really differentiating like coordination as a climbing skill versus just straight up, you know, getting stronger tendons. Yes. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me how much people emphasize, right? Just justly so that the coordinate the technical skills of a climber are very important that's very obvious right but most of that emphasis is on body position and footwork but it hasn't really been that emphasized that like the way that you use your hand on a climbing wall and the coordination on small holds is probably more important than any of those things but we haven't really differentiated what the adaptations are to strength training because one that's super important is coordination and we've just focused on a tool that feels really hard, like hanging on your fingers, but we kind of missed the point. We put too much emphasis on that, but we've kind of gotten away from, and we, I think we used to do this back in the day. They do it in England for sure. We've gotten away from just practicing using small holds more often. And like, that's so obvious and easy to do. Right. Interesting. I mean, yeah, it's, well, I, I mean, it's it's going to be clear to anybody who's listening that obviously your your depth of of knowledge on the, the subject of of training for for any kind of climbing discipline and you know the the many many different ways that that can be done is is so so deep and and broad and obviously you've seen like you're saying about your data sets you know like you've seen you've seen these things played out you know 
hundreds, if not thousands of times, I imagine over the years. Um, are there like, are there especially specific to, you know, this like subset of ice and mixed climbing, are there like specific injuries that you have seen more of or things that you think people should be uh, watching out for warning signs that, you know, people are maybe encroaching on overload in a way that's going to become problematic. I would say I see, I would, I would assume from my experience, I've seen very few mixed climbers that mostly do that. They get finger injuries. Those athletes get medial elbow pain or they get front-sided shoulder pain. That's like the typical injury there. And I would assume wrist injuries, but I haven't seen those as much as elbow for sure. And shoulder. And like, if you think about the movement that you do with, with a tool, you know, you grab overhead and then you pull it to your chest and then you do it on the other arm and you do that a thousand times in your day. Right. But then when you go home and you do training, climbers are really good at like just general calisthenic training. They do a bunch of pull-ups and a bunch of push-ups, which pretty much have the same damn range of motion. So it's like, you want to think that, you know, in order to have your training be sustainable, it shouldn't look like your sport because if it looks too much like my sport for too long of a period, like my connective tissue has a capacity, right? Everything has limits. All matter has limitations. And so anything done at too high of a dosage for too long certainly is going to be a risk factor for getting injured. So most of those athletes, I'd say, you know, you want to reserve that range of motion loading for your sport, but you don't need to train it necessarily for the sport because that's just more of the same thing. So in that context, I would have those athletes do heavier partial range of motion loading. Maybe they do pulling horizontally. Maybe they do, you know, pushing is horizontal as well, but do a partial range of motion. Like you don't need to go through this big dramatic range of motion and be very strict with your exercise because that's just more like your sport. That's more likely to get you injured than it would be if you did a modified range of motion that's heavier and slower. So one thing that people should be able to hear and should take to heart is that like they want the, you want the strength training to be done because it's heavy and that will make it slow, but it doesn't have to be at a full range of motion all the time. That in a lot of cases is more risky than it is helpful. Hmm. Now I'd say more people get elbow pain because they do weighted pull-ups on top of all the climbing that they do. And I would say that risk is not worth, it's not worth, it's not that great of a benefit. It's not worth the risk. Interesting. So what would be an example of like, let's, let's use the, the weighted pull-up example. Like what would be an a limited range of motion alternative to a weighted pull-up? So people could just do like a static isometric hold at like 120 degree elbow angle. They could do, and they could add load to it. They could do it with one arm. They could do it at 90 degrees as well. Add load to it, do it with one arm. That's hard. They could do horizontal rowing, horizontal pull with a cable machine, a bent over row. They could do isometric holds from those joint angles in the horizontal position. They could do partial range of motion, which is like between the two joint angles. Because really what you want to, what people want to remember with your training, your training is about loading your muscles and loading your tendons, right? In order to make more force and to create more tendon load, I want to stay in the middle range of motion because I'm going to get more force and tendon load, right? And that should be health promoting, right? But if I'm too strict with like, I have to do a full range of motion all the time, everyone's mechanics are different. The stress is not the same between individuals on the joints, some people get injuries, some people don't. Like I have really short lever arms and I don't get elbow and shoulder pain hardly ever. That's mostly because my leverage is really good for those things, right? I have problems reaching holds though because I don't have long arms. So it's like, there's not like a perfect body type really. There's just different, you know, there's different predispositions for people getting things based on their anatomy. But I see most, but if you took someone that had long arms and they were an ice climber and they do a lot of training, they would definitely get elbow pain. It's a lot of the same thing. The leverage is, is not awesome for the elbow and they're going to get sore elbows. Yeah. You're, you're literally describing me right now. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. Like most of the people that I talk to that have elbow pain, I ask them, I say, well, what's your ape index? And they're all positive ape indexes for the most part. Hmm. 
Very, nice. very few times do I chat with someone that has a small ape index like me that has medial elbow pain. Huh. That's really interesting. That This feels like another one of those light bulb moments in terms of like debunking one of those like maybe sort of like old school golden rules that, you know, like I feel like full range of motion is one of those old school golden rules. Like everything should be full range of motion because you need full range of motion. But it seems to me like what you're saying is for most of us, we're going out and we're using our full range of motion while we're doing our sport. And so we're, we're it's not like, it's not like that we risk, you know, becoming a, a super yoked bodybuilder that like can't, you know, use their full range of motion because they've built small range of motion because we go out and we stretch to a far hold all the time. But when we're training, we need to not, we need to, you know, reduce that joint load while still getting the muscular load. For sure, because the I'm... ends of the joint, the ends of the muscle length, the shortest length when your elbow is fully flexed or the longest length when your elbow is stretched out are the positions where you produce the least amount of force in that range of motion anyways. Right. So if the goal either. is to get stronger, you know, what's the what's the benefits of dropping really low and going over the bar? Just, I mean, and. Like, it doesn't mean that doing full range of motion pulling and bench pressing is a bad idea. It really means that people want to not be so dogmatic or so like overzealous about this full range of motion is producing some amazing results that a partial range of motion would partial range of motion would probably work better for most people. Hmm. It's just weird. Like people are so emotionally attached to what they do and it's hard to break those habits for people in a lot of ways. You know, if you do a partial range of motion on a pull-up on the internet and you post your video, people are going to be all over you about, that's not a full range of motion. Like, it's like there's some rule that someone made about a range of motion. Mm -hmm. But it's a very basic level understanding of physiology and exercise science. And it's very obvious when people come at posts like that on the internet and you're like, I mean, it's kind of sad. They just don't really understand the nuance there. But it's a big deal, for sure. For sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think that also highlights the difference between things like just general strength training for the sake of strength training and strength training with a, a purpose. Like, you know, that's, that's seems like what's that kind of separates you from just like going to your local, like non-climbing gym and hiring a personal trainer to just like help you get ripped. Like right. obviously you are, you are tailoring your experience in climbing your experience with climbers into how to do things to increase climbing performance and decrease injuries, not just, make people look good on a beach and obviously those are different things right what i would suggest people do in like the climbing context is even for like a alpine style or a mixed climber probably the best strength training exercise they could do is like an incline partial range of motion bench press right actually i did see i i meant to ask about that because i that's another post of yours that i saw recently was you you saying what to me seemed like a ridiculous thing that like bench pressing was the best thing you can do for climbing performance. And like, that seems so counterintuitive to, you know, the old school rhetoric. Um, and, People yeah. want to say that it's an antagonist muscle or antagonist movement, but they're thinking too much about the actual, what the movement looks like, which means very little with the training exercise. Like when you do an incline bench press, it's more, activated the the what's called the clavicular fibers so there's fibers that attach to your clavicle which is your collarbone that go down and they attach to your arm on the front side so when my arm is at my side and i lift it up i activate those fibers so the pec flexes the shoulder but when my arm is vertically overhead and i pull down the pec is the first muscle to activate so if i'm an athlete that spends most of my time which you are with your arms overhead and you're pulling you better have some capacity in your pack. Like, but push-ups aren't hard enough to build someone's strength and capacity. They're too fucking easy. Like I could do 50 push-ups on the floor right now. And that would do nothing for me other than make me really tired, but it's not going to get me the high recruitment numbers that I need to really increase my gas tank for doing more overhead stuff. So most people that want to like do, do a one-arm pull-up for whatever reason, or do front levers for whatever reason, and those can be individual goals or not really climbing goals, but like, that's fine. I usually tell them like work, making your chest stronger is the way you'll be able to do those movements. And it seems really counterintuitive, but that's just a like applied exercise science. That's just applied anatomy. Like the downside of a lot of like, and we're trying to change this in the States. Um, 
like we're trying to make a certification course for youth coaches to like, so they can, we can teach them about those things, right? Because climbing coaches are psyched and they are really good at the sport and they're really good at like communicating, but they don't even know anatomy. Like if, if you were, if you went into a, you know, health club here in the States and you wanted to be a coach, you better show the owner what your credentials are because maybe those credentials are good. Maybe they're not that good, but you have to have some sort of certification that says, I know a little bit about anatomy and physiology, et cetera. And that's not a thing in the climbing world, which we should change for sure, because there's a lot of advice being thrown around with maybe good intentions, but missing the real important nuance of like just applied anatomy. People just don't know that stuff. Hmm. So for what it's worth, like those things are a really big deal when it comes to doing training things that are actually going to help people instead of just making people more tired because we like getting tired because we're all anxious about doing stuff and actually increasing their performance. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think again, you're, I know you're not trying to do this, but you're doing a good job of, of selling yourself in terms of just why, why really nuanced understanding of these things is, is worth it and why people should be, be seeking nuanced instruction and coaching and training and, and all that kind of stuff advice. Um, because yeah, just reading random stuff on the internet isn't, uh, is not going to be the answer in many, many cases. Yeah. So there's like, and there's for people that are interested, there's tons of things on my blog and articles and such, and mostly rehab things that people can check out if they want. My Instagram page has tons of things, but it's like not organized in that sense. Like it's always for me, just like what I'm interested in, you know, and then, um, but there's also another account that I have on Instagram. I have a private account for people that want to like pay that have access to it, which is like way more detailed, like descriptions of things, workout stuff too. And I have a ton of online courses if people are interested. I even have an anatomy one that's like, I think it's 16 hours long. It was like eight, two hour classes over eight weeks time that we did, you know, that's recorded that people can check out. So hmm. very cool. Very cool. Well, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I don't want to take up uh, any more of your, your time. I know you've got a, a busy schedule of clients to get back to, but yeah, I really appreciate all this information and I, I, uh, I think that especially, and I know you've done a bunch of podcast interviews in the past, but this one about, uh, about, you know, more ice and mixed climbing specific information, I think, uh, fills a bit of a niche out there. I mean, there's a lot, you know, ice and mixed climbers are a, a niche of a niche when it comes to climbing as a general discipline. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I really appreciate it. And I think other people will really appreciate it as well. So. For sure. Yeah. And if you want to do another one, let me know. And we can like, since this was like a first intro one, we could do another one. That's like, here's what climber, ice and mix climber should probably do in their season. We can even go through and talk about seasonality of training and exercises people could do too. So it's like more that instead of just like, you know, kind of introducing and whatnot. Well, so just yeah, let me, I'll be happy to help you do that. That sounds super awesome. Thanks so much, man. Uh, and yeah, I hope that you uh, have a great rest of your day and get to do some climbing and get to do some some guitar playing. And <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thanks, buddy. Heck yeah. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Dr. Tyler Nelson of Camp 4 Human Performance. Uh, obviously, just a guy who has so much knowledge, and also he's super generous with that knowledge. And I think he really just wants all of us to be out there uh, living our best lives, crushing our projects, staying injury-free. Um, and I think that is just fantastic. Uh, I'm going to put links to his social media, as well as a bunch of articles to, uh, written by him and his website in the show notes. I highly recommend you go check them out. Uh, he, like I said, you know, he's just putting that information out there all the time and it's really awesome. And then I like, if you like me think that, uh, you could benefit from some one-on-one -on -one time with, uh, with Tyler, then definitely shoot him a message through, uh, through his website and book a consultation. And, uh, I imagine that he will have some really, really helpful information for you because obviously he's got just so much useful information to share. So, uh, with that, I will leave it there. But thank you for all for tuning in. 
as always, if uh, if you like the show, please follow us on Instagram, follow us on whatever uh, streaming platform you use, give us a like, give us a share, give us a rating. Uh, it all just goes to you know supporting the show and getting more cool folks on to to talk to, including uh, some pretty exciting interviews that I have coming up. Uh, so stay tuned because there's some some real good ones coming. I'll give you a hint. Uh, she's the first woman to climb M14 in North America. So if that uh, if that gets you excited, then uh, stay tuned because there's an interview with her coming out real soon. All right, everybody, have fun, stay safe. Bye for now. <laughs>